We're uh, in the last season of our series, Grasping God's Big Story. And when we began our series a while back, we talked about season one being the beginnings. Now, God has always been, but there is a beginning to the universe and a beginning to the invisible, invisible realm. And God said it was all very good. Then we went to season two and we talked about Genesis three and how sin entered the picture and ruined God's creation. In particular, it ruined our souls. And then we went to season three and we saw how God has restored us back into right relationship with himself. And he's done that through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's forgiven us. And he's given us an opportunity to have eternal life with him. And we celebrate that. Now in season four, we're going to talk about restoration. And what we're looking forward to someday when Christ returns, new heaven, new earth, our lives completely glorified, radically changed. And so beginning next weekend, we're going to take a couple of weekends and look at the last chapters of the book of Revelation, and I think you'll find that inspiring and encouraging to your life. But before we complete the whole story, I wanted to talk to you about something that we believers tend to get tripped up over a lot. And given the fact we've been through this story, I, I, want, I want us to, uh, to reset a little bit and, and think about what I'm going to share with you so that we'll actually enjoy our redemption, enjoy what Christ has done for us. Because I think there are a lot of Christians today, young and old alike, who, do, who are not enjoying what Christ has done for them. At least we sure don't look like it on our faces. And we don't talk like it. And so I want you to enjoy your journey until Christ returns. And so I'd like us to kind of get past this trip hazard. The other day, I went out running. When the weather turns nice, I, I enjoy uh, running outside. I'm not like Kyle and my wife, Marsha, who like to run when it's below zero. I don't get that. But anyway, uh, I've got I've to have warm weather when I, when I run. And so I was out running. And one of my goals every year when I run is not to fall, which is a pretty good goal to have. And <clears throat> the reason I have that goal is because I fall often. And so I was out running, and I went off the pavement and was on kind of an uneven trail. And there was these tree roots that were sticking out. And I guess it just wasn't paying attention. And my right, my right foot caught on one of them, and I went down on all fours. Now, I, I quickly brushed off and realized that everything was intact except I had fractured my pride. But that, <laughs> that, heals, that heals over time. And um, it's often funny when if you do run and you fall, have you ever noticed you get up and act like nothing happened, right? <laughs> even, even if it's in front of a whole bunch of cars, you still act like, and then you look back like, who did that to me? But anyway, um, so I was running a couple, about a week ago, I think it was, and, um, and, I, and I was going down the trail, and I saw the roots. They're, they're like this far apart from each other. And, and I told myself, I said, okay, there are the tree roots. Pick up your right foot. Don't fall again. And so I got to those things. They're right in front of me. And I picked up my right foot and I cleared it. But I was so focused on my right foot, I forgot about my left. <laughs> and the toes on my left foot caught that second uh, root. And down I went like a baseball player, sliding headfirst into second base. And I got up. It was kind of muddy that day. And I had mud all over the place. And I don't know, do any of you ever talk out loud to yourself? You know, the, the question that came to my mind is, if a pastor speaks out loud in a forest, can anybody hear it? But anyway, um, so I just, I spoke out loud, and I said something like this. I said, what is wrong with you? 
I mean, you, you saw it right in front of you. You told yourself, don't trip over it, and you still did. What is the problem? And what happened to me physically on that trail, I think happens to a lot of us spiritually. That is, there are certain things that we know, right, that we believe, and yet we still trip over them. And one of these things is something that if you're a follower of Christ, whether you're a new believer or, or been around for a long time, you still, we still have a tendency to, to stumble over it. So I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Brian to read what this trip hazard is. And let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Romans chapter 3 is where he's reading verses 21 through 31. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what, would be, what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his own sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Thank you, be seated. Thank you, Brian. So in that passage of scripture, what, what the Apostle Paul does is he basically boils down the gospel into its most simple, simple concept. And I even boil it down a little bit further with this little statement. Because in essence, what Paul is saying is that God has made it possible for anybody, anybody, to be in a right relationship with himself. Because you've been with me for the whole story, you know that sin threw us out of a right relationship with God. Now we can be in a right relationship with him. And all that's required, all that's required is to put complete faith in what Christ has, or what God has done for us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Just put our simple faith and trust in him. And that's what we get tripped up over. Most of us would agree with that statement. Most of us would say, yep, that's the truth. That's what I believe. Yet we still get tripped up over it. And that's because there's something inherent in our nature. That's the problem. And what's inherent in our sinful nature, which doesn't go away, by the way. It's always there, right? It, we won't be rid of that till we stand someday restored fully before the Lord. But what's in our nature is this, this thing in us that wants to achieve. 
The thing in us that wants to be approved, that wants to accomplish, that wants to be, that wants to measure up. When my brother and I were growing up at home, we went through a phase when we really wanted to be taller. I'm still in that phase, but anyway. And, uh, and we would go to my mom, we would get out the tape measure, and we'd say, Mom, measure us, measure us. And so mom would have us stand up against the panel wall in our mobile home, and she'd you know, make sure our feet were flat on the ground, and she'd stick the tape measure down there and you know, draw it up. And then the question we wanted to know right away was, am I taller, am I taller? Now, we had tried to do this every week, but she made us wait a little bit longer. And to hear that you were a quarter, a half, or even an inch taller was like a big deal. Because we all want to measure up. We all want to grow taller. We all want to get better looking. We all want to get smarter. We all want to get stronger. We all want to be faster. We all want to be more successful throughout our whole life. And what pushes and promotes that are our parents, our peers, the public, multimedia, everything around us says you must, you must be a certain way in order to be accepted, in order to thrive, in order to be normal or to be uh, extraordinary. And so we're driven by that in our culture these days, and, and it, it puts a lot of pressure on us. And so we're, you know, part of what that leads to is we measure ourselves against each other, right? As kind of benchmarks to feel like, am I better looking? Am I smarter? Am I faster? Am I this? Am I that? But here's the thing, and I kind of like it actually, even though it feels like it goes against our nature and it's what trips us up, is that when we bring all that stuff to God, God just looks at it and he goes, it's garbage. All your achievements, all your success, all your efforts, it just doesn't mean anything to me. I, I was listening to um, Oswald Chambers on audiobook. Somebody was reading some of his, his writings, and, and it said something I thought was really profound. It said, you know, oftentimes when we try to build something for God, he tears it down. And I had to really think about that because it was really profound for me. That oftentimes we try to build something for God, he tears it down. Because we're trying to do it for God out of our own strength. He says, he's, in, his, in the devotional, says what God would rather do is build something in us and through us, which is letting him do it, right? Make sure it's coming from him and he gets the glory. Well, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us are trying to build our lives and say, God, are you happy with this? Are, are, you, are you impressed with this? Look how, look how good I am. And what God does is he says, I'm not impressed by any of it. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteousness are like, and the, and the word in the Hebrew is actually menstrual or filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. If you go to Romans chapter 3, Paul puts it this way. Same thing, but he says it like this. In Romans 3, he says, I think we have Romans 3. Well, then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the Scriptures say, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away, all have become useless, and no one does good, not a single one. Now, for somebody who's trying to measure up, that feels really insulting, doesn't it? I mean, what would it be like if you worked on a project at, at, uh, at your job, 
and you poured your heart and soul into it, 60, 70 hours a week, whatever it was, and finally you show up and you bring it to your boss and you say, here, I'm done, I got the project done, I poured my heart and soul into it, and she sees it and she goes, really, you did that? This is garbage. This is the worst, I can't, I, I mean, I can't even believe we employed you and you would do something like this. And it's all tossed out and you're fired over that. Or can you imagine you're a, a, a child or uh, let's say your child or your grandchild comes home from elementary school and they've been working on a craft project for you as a parent. And they've, you know, pasted and glued and colored and they're so proud of it. And they, you know, they bring it home to you and they present it to you and you look at it and you go, what is that? <laughs> they say, I, I did this for you, mom, or I did this for you, daddy. And you look at it and you go, that is like the worst thing I've ever seen. I can't believe you're my child. Let me have that thing <laughs> and throw it out. How would that poor child feel, right? I mean, you and I hear those illustrations and we go, yeah, that's horrible. Who would ever say something like that, you know, to an employee that poured their heart into it or to a child that, that gave their best? I mean, it may not be the best looking thing, but you always tell your kids the best thing you've ever seen, right? Because you want them to feel good about it. Because when you reject what somebody has put their effort and their heart into, what, what it feels like to them, and we've all felt, is like you're being rejected. And yet God says to us, I hate to tell you this, but everything, everything you present to me that comes from you is like garbage to me. It's just like filthy rags to me. And that's because God does not grade on a curve. See, that was the problem the Pharisees had. The Pharisees figured God graded on a curve. They knew they weren't perfect people. But they figured nobody, nobody scored better than them. Therefore, because they scored the best, they got the A, and everybody else was below them. And they loved to let everybody else know they were below them. God just says to us, look, my requirement is 100%. And if you can't score 100%, it just isn't good enough. You see how that kind of how that runs against our nature, how hard that is for us because we continuously default to wanting to do something, to earn something for God. And God says you cannot live that way. And see, that's the really good news, Paul says, that he has for us. And the good news is that what we cannot do to impress God with, God has done for us in Christ. I want to illustrate this for you. You know, in the Old Testament, after Adam and Eve sinned, right, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed and they ran and they, they hid and then they covered themselves with some leaves. They were trying to hide not just their physical nakedness but also their, their internal nakedness. When you get to, to the New Testament, Christ does something different. He does something for us. He actually, he actually comes and he, he covers our internal nakedness. He puts a covering over us. In the Old Testament, God put, it says for Adam and Eve that he put um, skins on them, probably from animals, right, and covered them. In the New Testament, he covers us differently. So Brian is going to help me out, and, and so Brian, I'm going to actually uh, cover you in just a moment with my prayer shawl. This is going to represent the righteousness of Christ. This is going to represent Christ's perfection. So I need you to take off that, that dirty old rag you got on you right now. Last time you handed it to me, it kind of smelled, but anyway. <laughs> so, I don't know, where'd you, where'd you buy this I, at? I, I, Odd Lots, or? I think it was Jacques Penet, yeah. yeah. Jacques Penet, yeah. It's really it's, nice French boutique. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, 
it's just not good enough to be on our staff. Okay. All right. All right. I get okay. it. Okay. We got we to dress in righteousness. So what I'm going to do instead, all right, is um, so if you get sound, I'm going to put you under this prayer shawl. This represents the righteousness of Christ. All right. Okay. So now, now you're now you look so different. Now you're acceptable on our staff. All right. Thank you. More Thank importantly, you. <clears throat> more importantly, you're acceptable to the Lord because you're not wearing something I gave you. I made for you, or you earned. You're wearing something God just draped over you. And he said, he said, this is my, this is my righteousness, and I'm putting on you, Brian. All right? right? Thank you, Brian. Thank you can be seated there. Let's thank Brian. <clears throat> so look what he says. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, yet God in his grace. See, grace is free. I can't earn that. God in his grace and I love, you know, freely, right? Freely, freely makes us right in his sight. That's just so beautiful, isn't it? He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from, I don't want to step on this coat, right? When he freed us from what? The penalty for our sins. So where did that penalty for our sins go? It went on him, Christ. And so he declares us as being righteous now. But I still have a question for you. Why is that? Even though we know that, right? We believe that. Why is it so hard for us to live out of it? To live in the joy and the freedom of it? Why is it we're still competing? You know, why is it we still get anxious? Why is it we get jealous? Why is it we still get envious? Why is it that we always feel like, you know, there's something I have to do better, I have to be better? Why is that? And I'm going to tell you why. It's because everybody here, including me, we are all addicts. A-D-D-I-C-T-S, addicts. Hi, my name is Dale. I'm an addict. Okay, man, you guys. <sighs> this, honestly, church is one big 12-step program. You understand it, don't you? If you're going to be honest, that's what church is. It's 12-step, okay? All right, so let me try it one more time. Hi, I'm Dale, and I'm an addict. That's good. You're all addicts too, right? See, what are we addicted to? Three things. You ready? The law, guilt, and shame. We're all addicted to it. When I say the law, what I mean is this, this overarching moral standard of right and wrong that we know to be true. My parents are missionaries, and the people they went to in Papua New Guinea had never heard of God, had never heard of the Bible, had, didn't know anything about a constitution. Did, I mean, they were as primitive Stone Age as you can be. But guess what? They all, had a, they all had a basic sense of right and wrong in everything. They had a sense of right and wrong. Our universe has been wired with this sense of right and wrong. And when you transgress what is right and you do what is wrong, you feel guilt and you feel shame over it. And all of us are addicted to that, and it drives our lives, and sometimes it drives our lives nuts. In fact, you know, what people do oftentimes is they, they take that issue of, of guilt and shame and they'll manipulate us with it. You ever had anybody make you feel guilty before to get you to do something? I'm the only one? Wow. Every one of us, right? And we all do it to each other, right? But you and I are living in a, in a new and different age right now. And I know you're aware of this, but maybe you haven't thought, thought it through. 
But we're living in a time, especially in our Western culture and particularly in our country, where what we're trying to do is get rid of this sense of an overarching moral law so that we can get rid of any sense of guilt and shame. And what we're being told is that this idea that there is an overarching truth, that there's one you know, definite, uh, absolute moral code, and this idea of guilt and shame is really a neurosis that stems from our religious training, our religious background. That's really a neurosis that, that, that stems from our parents and from an archaic old way of thinking. And we need to break free out of that. That the truth is this. The truth is whatever you believe, whatever you choose to believe, and your feelings shouldn't make you feel guilty or shame. Whatever you feel, if you like what you feel, that is your truth, and it's okay. And if you would just live this way, we would get rid of the law and guilt and shame, and, and it would be a, a truly a new age of liberation. But look what it's doing to our families. Look what it's doing to our students. Look what it's doing to our world. It's not liberating us. It's creating chaos. It's creating destruction. It's creating pain. And if anything, it's actually, it's actually creating more guilt and more fear than we ever had before. And getting rid of God and getting rid of the Bible and getting rid of morality, I promise you, if you could get rid of it all, would not get rid of guilt and get rid of shame. And Tim Keller says why. He says, it's because truth and morality are not relative. They're not based on how you feel. It is wired into the very fabric of the universe and the very fabric of your being. And you cannot escape it. It's inescapable. It's just there. You can cover it up. You can drug yourself up all you want. But in the end, when you wake up the next day, it's there again because God put it there to drive us someplace, and that is to drive us to him. Because in him is where I find relief from my guilt and my shame. In him is where I'm able to, I'm able to keep the law perfectly through Christ. And it's all done through what the Bible calls redemption. And we've been talking about that. Pastor Kyle talked about that when he spoke for a couple of weekends in the book of Romans as well. What is redemption? Redemption comes from this Hebrew word called ga'al. Say it with me, ga'al. One more time. Ga'al. Ga'al literally means a kinsman redeemer, okay? It means a person who redeems. Kinsman means a relative. In the Old Testament, if you went into debt and you're in big trouble, you're going to end up in slavery, etc., a relative could buy you back, so to speak. They could pay your debt for you and rescue you. The requirement was, number one, they had to be the nearest relative. Number two, they also had to be willing to do it freely, not under compulsion. And number three, they had to bear the cost themselves. So it was a big deal to buy somebody back, so to speak, to get them out of trouble. Jesus, Paul tells us, is our kinsman redeemer. He put on human flesh and became like us. He's our relative. He's our brother. Became one with us. Not out of compulsion, but freely out of his love for us he paid the ultimate price that nobody else could pay he gave his life in order that we might be redeemed 
And that leads us to this funny theological word. I was going to use a different version, but I thought, you're so smart with Dale. <clears throat> we'll, use this, we'll use this version with the big word in it, okay? It's, it's found in Romans chapter 3. We'll put it up here, I think. Hello? Are we there? There we go. Yet, in, yet God, in his grace, freely... No, that's not the right one, okay? What I'm looking for is Romans 3.25, okay? There we go. Whom God put forth... So this is God bringing Jesus forward, right? Okay? Whom God put forth as a propitiation. I just love the word. That's why I had to use it. Say it together with me. It's so beautiful. Propitiation by his blood, okay, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So what in the world is a propitiation? It's kind of a cool word because you trace it back in the Greek and it refers to the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid on the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, what would happen is a high priest would come in and he would bring the blood of the animal, the sacrifice, and he would put the blood on the mercy seat and it would satisfy, listen carefully, it would satisfy God's wrath, God's anger towards sin. And God would withhold his judgment on the people until Christ came and offered his blood and then that was the last sacrifice that was needed because it was the perfect sacrifice. And that's a trip hazard for some people in our culture today. Some people don't like the idea that God is, is angry, that God has wrath. In fact, there are some people who say, yeah, I just cannot accept the God of the Old Testament because it talks too much about his anger and his wrath and his vengeance. And there are some people who say, I can't really accept God, period, because I can't accept this idea that God would crucify his son on the cross. That's, <clears throat> that's like child abuse. So we kind of need to edit the Bible and get rid of all that old archaic thinking and come up with something else. And it's because they totally misunderstand the whole idea of anger and wrath, particularly the wrath and anger of God. So let's bring this down to a level we could understand. How many of you have ever had somebody in your life, I have, I do, who you love so much, but they make you so angry because they're destroying their lives? They might be destroying their lives with drugs. They might be destroying their lives with abuse of alcohol. It might be with porn. It might be with really bad, poor decisions. You see what it's doing to them. You see what it's doing to their family, with their, to their marriage, to their friendship. You realize if this doesn't stop soon, they're going to kill themselves. They're, I mean, they're going to ruin and wreck their lives. And it makes you angry, right? You love them, but you're, it's your love for them that makes you so angry about it. That's how God looks at the world today. He sees what we're doing and he's, he's made a way for us to get out of it and yet we keep making the wrong decisions or the wrong choices and it angers him because he loves us so much. Listen, if God hated us, do you know what God would do if he hated us? Do you know what, the, you know what hatred always leads to? Hatred always leads to indifference. If God hated us, he would just say, I'm, I'm walking away from you. And let you go to hell. I'm not going to do anything about it. God's anger is not opposed to his love and mercy. It's his love and mercy that causes this divine anger. If I hate you, I'm just going to leave you. 
I don't care what you do in your life. I Forget about you. Ruin your life. Kill yourself. Destroy your family. Ruin your marriage. I'm walking away. That's hatred. See, when somebody hurts you, right, you have a choice. You can either become hard toward them, and when you become hard toward somebody who's hurt you, you just harden them, right? Or you can forgive them. And that's what God chose to do through Christ. Forgive us. And when you experience somebody's forgiveness that you don't deserve, what it does is it, it, it sensitizes you, it awakens you to something of the love of God. And that's what Christ did for you and for me. I mean, he is taking care of everything for us. Everything. There's just nothing more for us to do. Except Paul keeps saying faith. Put faith in him. Trust him. Don't just believe him mentally, but believe in him with your whole life. Live out of this freedom. Stop trying to earn this freedom. Enjoy this freedom. Celebrate this freedom. So that's a lot of, you know, that's kind of a lot of explanation. What I want to do is give you some illustrations and two stories, one in the Old Testament, one in the New that, under, that just, it's a beautiful picture of this idea of redemption, of God making us right with himself. The first one you probably know about is the story of, of Ruth in the Bible. If you haven't read it lately, read it again. It's a short little story. It's beautiful. In that story, there's this woman, her name is Naomi, and her husband, Elimelech, who go to a place called Moab because things aren't going well in Bethlehem in Israel. And they go live amongst foreigners, and they have... Two sons, their sons marry these two daughters, and then the sons die. And the two daughters happen to be Moab, uh, the two girls happen to be Moabite women. Then Naomi's husband dies, and so, so now she has no sons, she has no husband, and she decides I'm going back to Bethlehem. And, one of the, and both daughters say, we'll go back with you, and then she says, no, 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 you guys stay here. You're not one of our people. It'd be better for you to stay with your own people, find another husband. And Orpah, one of the girls says, okay, I'm staying. But Ruth says, I'm not. I'm going back with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm going to take care of you, Naomi. Naomi says, fine. And they go back to Bethlehem. And, and Ruth's trying to take care of Naomi. And Naomi says to Ruth, look, you can, you can go glean in the field of Boaz. He's one of my relatives. And, and uh, in those days, you know, they would... After the harvest, whatever wheat or barley was left on the ground, they had to leave it for the poor people. So Ruth went in and gathered it up and speeding through the story. And uh, she catches Boaz's eye, and, and a love relationship kind of starts. And one day Naomi comes to Ruth, and she recognizes what's going on. She sees the favor Boaz has given to her, and he says, Listen, um, I, I want you to go to the threshing floor tonight because Boaz is working there. He'll be tired. He'll eat a nice meal, have something to drink. He's going to lay down and fall asleep. I want you to put on this beautiful dress and put some perfume on. And I want you to go up there and, and then I want you to sneak in and, and, and I, want you, I want you to lift up the blanket and uncover his feet. And then just wait and he'll know what to do. Can you imagine that? So she sneaks up there and she's uncovering his feet and she's laying there. And here's what it says in the passage there in, in Ruth. He said, who are you? I would say that too. It just happened to me. I feel a draft. Who are you? And I love her response. She said, I am Ruth, your servant. That's what Naomi told her to say. I am Ruth, your servant. 
Spread your wings. And this word in the Hebrew is called kanaf. We'll get back to that a little bit. Spread your kanaf over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's almost like, I, I almost had to, you know, the Old Testament sets this up for the New Testament. The Bible's not a bunch of separate books. They all weave together. And the story of Ruth has something to do with, with you and me. It has something to do with understanding redemption. And it's almost, it's almost like, like Christ has come to us. And he said, I want to be a redeemer. But you've got to ask me to spread my, my garment over you. If you don't want it, I won't do it. But you've you got to ask. You have some faith here. And it's this beautiful picture. Later on in the book of Malachi, there's this passage that I wanted to show you. Malachi chapter 3. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. That's the word kanaf. Kanaf. Again, the corner. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. So God's saying, listen, I, I want to heal you. I want to heal your soul. So you'll be filled with joy because you've been liberated, set free from the law, set free from guilt, set free from shame, to live in my righteousness and live in my grace. And then there's this beautiful picture in the New Testament. This is what I want to close with. So I'm going to ask Brian to come up here again. So Brian now is going to represent Jesus. One day, Jesus was walking along, and he had his prayer shawl on. And there was crowds of people around him. And there was this woman who, who saw Jesus. And this woman, the Gospels tell us, had been bleeding for 12 years. She had a menstrual cycle. It just wouldn't stop. It rendered her unclean. She couldn't go to the temple. And, and you can't imagine how lonely and discouraged it must have been. And she saw Jesus, and, and she thought to herself, if I could just touch the, listen, the kanaf, here we go again, right? Ruth the kanaf, right? Malachi the kanaf. If I could just touch the corner, and actually this little piece called the tzitzit, if I can just touch this, maybe I'll be healed. And so she passes through this crowd and she touches it, and suddenly Jesus stops. And he says to his disciples, somebody just touched me. And they're like, Everybody's trying to touch you right now. Everybody wants a piece of you, Jesus. What do you mean? He says, no, no, no. I felt power go out of me. And finally the woman comes up and she says, I'm the one that touched the tzitzit. I'm the one that reached for the kanaf of your prayer shawl. And I love what Jesus says to her. I, I, I want to make sure I got it straight. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And I love this, go in peace. Your suffering is over. You know, we come full circle back to what Brian read earlier in Romans 3. All that's required to know this benefit is faith, is faith. Well, we just trust him that he's done everything for us. And the beautiful picture is, if we do, then what Jesus in essence says is, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spread my, my wings of healing the kanaf over you, and I'm making you my family, and I'm bringing you to the Father, and he sees my righteousness on you, and his anger and wrath are past, and he accepts you as though you're me. Does it get any better? Does it get any better than that? And you don't have to earn it, and you don't deserve it. 
if we would just learn to live out of it. You know, there's a song we oftentimes sing in church called It Is Well With My Soul. And oftentimes we, we link that with people who are suffering, right? But, you know, we all suffer from sin. And I love, I love the words of song because it talks about how his blood has cleansed us. It talks about our victory in Christ and how if I come under the kanaf, if I come under the wings of God's righteousness, man, I just can have such peace in my life. So Jesus said to this woman, let's pray. Lord, in a moment we're going to sing that beautiful song. It is well with my soul. And I pray that we'll sing it out as a testimony to you. I pray it will stop tripping over what you've done for us and just enjoy what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to stop trying to impress you. Help us to stop trying to build something for you. Help us stop trying to earn something from you. And help us, God, to stop competing with others. Help us to stop measuring ourselves against others. God, it doesn't do any good. You brought forth your son as a propitiation for everyone. You've taken away the wrath, the anger of God. You've made us complete and you've healed us. And we just thank you so much for that. Hear us as we sing out to you 